Oh, well, who would like to go ahead and read for us in a big, loud voice? Okay. That isn't Neil. <laughs> <laughs> well, go ahead, Neil. You can read if you like. <laughs> okay, so we're from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verse 9 to 14. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood in the distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Alright, so the Pharisee and the tax collector. So most of you have probably heard this story before, and we both know uh, the traits that are being portrayed here. I think it stands out pretty... Um, like a sore thumb, really, that this guy is being prideful, the prideful Pharisee and the tax collectors showing humility and coming into God, um, as it says that he, he was the one that went home exalted. Um, and yeah, I think it's important that we understand the context of the day. And I know in the past two weeks we've been talking about similar parables with the Pharisees involved, but I think it's just important to understand the social, social positions of the people that Jesus was talking to and what was going through their minds. And um, I think. For the people in the day when I was reading reading about it, I think a lot of people would have thought that the Pharisee was the person that was in the right because they were obviously well-respected. Um, they were probably considered the, the most righteous people in town and they were the ones who were supposed to represent what a good Christian life, or I don't know if it was called being Christian back then, but um, to live a good life was to be like a Pharisee. And so for Jesus to come out and say that the uh, tax collector was the one that was justified, I think that would be a bit surprising uh, for them because the tax collectors, they were probably the most hated occupation amongst the Jewish people because they were considered people that had betrayed their, betrayed their people and joined um, the Romans in their rule. And they were very dishonest and scammed people out of their money and were just basically considered the, <coughs> the scum of the earth. And so for people living in the day, I think it'd be very hard for them to accept that the tax collector was the one that got to be forgiven by God. It just didn't make I don't think it would make sense to them because of the type of people that they are. But, but for people living in that day, I think it'd be very difficult. But with our modern perspective, I think it'd be easy for us to be on the other end of the spectrum, looking at the Pharisee and going, ah, oh, we know he's being really prideful right now, he's being pretty stuck up. And we can just point the finger at him and go, yeah, like it's obvious he's in the wrong. But... Um, I think we can be quick to assume that he's just some guy who's got the wealth and in a rich family or something like that, or I've got this written here, that he's a particularly, a purely pompous, puffed up, persistently prideful fellow. 
in that comparison, we are not as bad as. And I think that's a very easy conclusion to come to um, in that. Uh, I think we underestimate, though, that how much the... Oh, what's this? Oh, yeah, that's how they were viewed. Sorry, I didn't switch that. Yeah, there are the traits that they have. But, um, yeah, I think we can underestimate <laughs> how much this guy actually... Oh, it doesn't do the animation. Oh, it's supposed to spin around the finger and then point... I put us instead of the Pharisee there. How much it represents us. Um, um, because we see that every day that humans, are, by nature, they're very good at um, comparing themselves to one another. Um, and again, people by nature are very good at taking the pleasure in comparing themselves to other people in order to make their life position uh, feel of higher status or more important than the people around them. And we see that in the way people talk about one another and bring each other down with their words. And what the Pharisee said in the verse 11 where he says, I thank you that I'm not like other people, like the robbers, evildoers, or even like this tax collector. But this kind of self-justification isn't pleasing to God at all because it shows no repentance for the sin that he's committed in his weeks or, or even an understanding about the fact that he is is lost in his own heart condition. But I want to go through a couple like areas uh, where this is the case in our lives, I think. Because we often look at this parable and say, ah, yes, we ought to be humble like the tax collector, uh, coming in humility to God, and being up in front and honest about our mistakes, and accepting the need for God and crying out at our broken condition in that earnest repentance. But God didn't come to save the righteous, but the broken and the needy in spirit. Who knows they can do nothing without God and nothing for, for him either. And without God, we have nothing. But I think, from what we see with the Pharisee, that a lot of people miss this mark and miss the concept of it. And just without realizing it, we become like the Pharisee in one way or another because of the pride tendencies that we have. And pride can come in lots of different forms. It can come in the stubbornness in our beliefs or focusing on our own self-importance. And then there's boastfulness. I think, I think there's a couple areas where we think we're really, really good at stuff and we can be quick to, to boast about those things. Uh, like we see from the Pharisee, we can try justify ourselves by comparing ourselves to other people. Well, what are some of the areas that we see it? Well, I think... The first one we're going to talk about is work life. Um, and I think pride comes into play a lot in work life. And I want to bring it up because I think it's a really prominent area in our life. Oh, who here enjoys their job? <laughs> I, I like my job pretty well. It's pretty good. And the number one phrase I hear from my boss whenever I see them, they live in New South Wales, so I don't see them often. But the one phrase they always say to me is, come, come on, take pride in your work. <laughs> Go on. When you do this, it makes our, our company better, it makes everyone enjoy their job, everyone works harder, and everyone c- communicates better. And, and I think that's a godly concept. I think it's godly for us to, to do our work as unto God, and God calls us to do all that, um, because that's the position he's put us in. Um, but it brings us to the question as well, where is the line of how much we actually put into our work? How much time should we be putting into it and not making it our central focus. Because it can be a trap in a couple of ways. Some cultures pride themselves fully on their work, and even to the point of where they neglect their sleep, like Japan or other big big countries. I don't know too many other countries that 
do that. But I mean, even in Australia, there's a lot of people that do it. It's not just Japan. There's a lot of countries that make work so important that they neglect like all the things around in their life. It becomes a, a major importance, and it takes precedence over a lot of things like their family, like, like God, recreation, a- anything that's not work related falls to the wayside because of how much investment they're putting into that. And I think to live that kind of life is really sad because they spend their entire lives aiming to achieve the goals that they're setting out, but ultimately they're setting their, their sights on the goals they have in their work. And then they sacrifice their relationships and don't have opportunities to try new things anymore. And worst of all, they make it an idol and make it more important than God. Now, it's not always the case that pride is the sole motivator for overcommitting to work. Definitely not. But I think it definitely comes into play for, for a lot of things. And it leads to the neglect of God. And for me, I see it in a lot of in families and with people in their relationships as well. And Jesus told another parable about this very thing, actually, about a man who worked all his time um, storing up the grain in his barns. And I'll, I'll read it out, the excerpt. And I said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store up my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for, you, uh, for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. To which God said, you fool. For you do not know that tonight your life will be demanded of you. The treasures of this man couldn't be taken with him, but would go to someone else. But looking at this man's life, it it looks like the only thing he'd ever really built up was his wealth. And there's nothing wrong with taking pride in his work and all the things that he had built, but he made it the central focus of his life. And if we do that in our walk, we may just end up like this guy or even like the Pharisee in thinking that everything is well because we've set everything up and we've done all the things that we need to to set ourselves up for life but yeah so we just need to be mindful in our, in our approach and our work and be thinking about that daily anyway moving away from the workplace now we're going to go into to, to the family area now and I think this is one I, I particularly touch here because I've seen many, many arguments. And my family, if you've met any of my mother or my sisters, and even my dad, they're very headstrong people. And once they get into <laughs> an argument, you're going to be there for a while. So, um, But yeah, I've seen countless d- days of just, there'll be a sensitive topic and they'll argue about the silliest things. It could be starting from like, whether we should get a second dog. I know that's a silly example, but it will start with that. And then from that, one person disagrees. And where that happens, they'll go in an endless cycle of this conversation until it's a full-blown argument, until they're shouting at each other, with each person trying to have the last word over each other in that conversation. And after a bit of big time, it just becomes an endless spiral of just the same arguments. Me sitting there, guys, you're making the same points. And they're like, shh, don't talk. <laughs> but... The, the, fact, the fact of the matter is that they're not actually saying the wrong things. They both have valid arguments, but they're too prideful and too headstrong to just say, okay, that's what you think. But So the argument just continues with no end in sight. But what is the reason for continuing to argue? It doesn't really benefit anything. And is the controversy of a, a 
buying another dog really worth all the argument? Is it going to have earth-shattering consequences for the family? I don't think so. But the arguments that I saw were just merely silly squabbles that continued because neither side desired to stop first. The headstrong pride of each individual would just see them to stick to their guns until one of them would blow up and say, Oh, well, go do things your way then. And just to leave off, it, leaving it in silence. And then at the end of those things, there was damage done. And the relationships were shaken. The atmosphere was just nothing short of awkward and just uncomfortable most of the time. And in our relationships with people, there are points in our lives where we need to bring ourselves to humility, even though we may not agree on the things being said. And I think that's true for our faith as well. Because um, fighting over things in expense of our relationship is childish and it can have lasting negative effects in the same way that we see uh, we must come to God in humility like the tax collector we should also come in humility to one another that we can communicate and develop our relationships in positive ways rather than trying to become on top and strain our relationships Um, but one of the most common things I see when I'm witnessing the friends I find that it's really hard to to tell them about faith unless you listen to them first. I find that trying to force your opinion and what you have to say first, it just never goes down quite, I would expect. But when I ask them about theirs and then they tell me about it, I find that despite strongly disagreeing with some of the some of the things they say, like the vibrations of everything in life or that God doesn't exist, or even these, these things, why, even the process of how they believe these things, the person becomes a lot more open after I've listened to that without judging what they believe. And in turn, that allows me to share what I think and what I believe. And that not only builds the trust in my friendship, but allows me to have, have, for them to have an open ear to what I have to say as well. And I think that humility is really, really important in maintaining the relationship with another person, especially of another, another faith. And if that's the case with people, how much more should that be with, with God? How much more should we have a humility in the relationship that we have with Him? Um, so we're going to move to an, one more area now. Ah, yes. And so this is our faith in righteousness. Now, we're going to move on to uh, this story. And this is about good old chatty boy, never Chad Neza. Somehow, in any either youth group or any study I do, I somehow intend to incorporate Chad in my my sermons and my talks. So I thought, why not do it in church as well? Um, But yeah, so I'm just going to read an excerpt from Daniel chapter 4, 28 to 32. And all this happened... Oh, I'll give context first, I guess. Um... So this is around the time where <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar was ruling Babylon and um, his nation started to become really, really strong. And I think, I believe a prophet warned him about being careful with his, with his pride, make sure that he gives God the glory and not take it for himself. And this happens a year later on in the story. <clears throat> and so all these things happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. And 12 months later, as the king was walking on the rooftops of the palace of Babylon, he said... Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what I have decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. 
Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grain like the ox. Seven times will pass, or seven years, will pass by you. Um, for until you acknowledge the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Um, yeah. So we say in this, right, as King Nebuchadnezzar praises himself and begins to take the credit for all the good things that are happening around. Um, yeah, Jesus spoke about this very thing in the, the parables. The hum, um, was it? So we'll look back at that verse again. He says that um, for all those who lift themselves up will be humbled, and for all those that humble themselves will be exalted. And yeah, we see very clearly that he's uh, not exactly being the most humble in the world, and God humbles him. No, if self-glorification leads to being humbled like that, wouldn't it be better just to remain humble and to not go through that painful process of being humbled? The righteousness of man clearly falls short of what is required to, to be in God's presence and to enter into the kingdom of God. Because all have sinned and falling short of the glory of God. And i got an excerpt here from um, Pilgrim's Progress. It's one of my favorite books by John Bunyan. And when the character Faithful is telling about how we come to faith and how we come to accepting that he needed Jesus, this is what he said in his quote. <clears throat> I, by my sin... I've fallen a great great way into God's debt, and no amount of righteousness can settle that past score, for I have no extra righteousness to give for my past mistakes. Though I live ever so perfectly, the past is always there to collect its due. Then I thought to myself, if I desired to enter the presence of God, I would need to have the righteousness of a man who had never sinned. I really love that. It's so, it just shows how hopeless we are with that God. It's like, the argument is so sound. You don't have any righteousness to expend for your past. There's just no way, even if you lived ever so perfectly. If it's not a system of works, then there's no way you can outweigh the evil that we have we've done with the good works that we do. And the nature of our position in this world um, is that regardless of how good we think we are, that's not enough. Because I remember in one of Malcolm's sermons, he said that Jesus said to the people, if you want to um, enter God's presence, I think it was, you have to have a, a faith that exceeds the Pharisees. You can't just be like the Pharisees. You must exceed that. And they were considered the most righteous people. Yeah. A, a very dangerous thing that people will do is trust their own hearts because it will tell them everything is well with their souls and that everything between them and God is fine. And when we think that we don't need God, we cannot receive his righteousness that he offers us. And unless God wakes us up from that, like he woke Nebuchadnezzar up by humbling him, we would remain separated from him. But I think because God loves us, he is willing to humble us, even if it's painful. And I think I've seen a lot of things in my family, particularly where God has had to humble a lot of our family members to get his point across that we need him over trying to do things our own way because if we're not humble for God like it said in <clears throat> back in the verse it said that the, Phar- um, not the, the tax collector was the one that was heard but for the Pharisee because he was in that place God didn't hear what he had to say he wasn't justified before God and that just goes to show that our best efforts will miserably fail then if boasting and 
talking about our efforts and how we've lived well before God doesn't do anything, then we're going to be in trouble. Um, but for those of us who choose to come before God in humility, there is good news. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. God, um, yeah, God sees past all of that and simply says, come to me. Come to me, like it says in the song, in simplicity, in humility and faith. And when you do this, I will wash you clean. For in your repentance and your accepting of me, through me you'll be justified before the Father.